you know, hindsight of these bands who do several farewell tours, you're like, oh, that was a money play. They knew it the whole time. I tend to think with a positive attitude. I'm sure most of the time they really believed it was going to be their last tour. And then, I mean, I just experienced it. We were off for six years. We weren't disbanded or anything, but we were working on a record and things got in the way. And I can attest, dude, after you're home for a while, you want to get the fuck back out there. I can understand for the right price. You definitely consider it at the very least. your speakers up to 11 because it's time for too much effing perspective the podcast that asks musicians and entertainers to relive their most spinal tap moments when nothing goes right and everything gets kind of weird i'm your host alan keller a comedy writer in la and former lead singer of the least heralded chicago band the falling will lend us and i'm your co-host alex hoffman former tour manager for radiohead and former lead singer of the least heralded milwaukee band the vainglorious Our guest today is Johnny Christ from the band that beat out Rihanna for an MTV Music Award, Avenged Sevenfold. We talked to Johnny about being pelted with sandwiches when opening for Iron Maiden in Italy, how it felt to tour Europe simultaneously with Guns N' Roses and Metallica, and what unflattering nickname the road crew gave to Avenged Sevenfold's expensive skull with wing stage prop. So without further ado, let's go to the TME. Show. It really puts perspective on things, though, doesn't it? Not yeah. too much. There's too yeah, much that's... perspective now. Alex, I want to start the conversation today by just saying I am not in my recording studio, also known as my bedroom, which is hermetically sealed and has uh, pillows and stuff. I'm actually in my kitchen because my wife is ill. Oh, boy. So if if you hear an echo with my voice, it's because it's ping-ponging off the pots and pans, right? So cut me a little slack here. Fair enough. So I want to talk about our chat today with Johnny Christ, and we learned something really interesting. Johnny loves two bands that I love, the Beatles and the Beach Boys. Yeah, it was an immediate love fest between you guys around that. Yes. And you know, Avenged Sevenfold doesn't sound like either of those bands. So that was interesting to me. But we also recently sat down with 311 lead singer Nick Hexum. And you know what band he worships? Do you remember? The Clash, right? Right. The Clash. And if you're familiar with 311's music, other than the occasional reggae beat The Clash would appropriate, there isn't much clash in that band sound either, I don't think. And mm-hmm. it made me think of how, as musicians, the artists we admire may not always be influences. Or if they are, it may be so subtle or so diluted to not really have an impact on our actual sound. Yeah. And the truth is, it's usually not a great career move to be too influenced by the artists we love. I mean, that's called being a tribute band. Or derivative and unnecessary because we're doing something that's already been done. So why do it? Yeah, that's right. It reminds me of the Stone Temple Pilots' first album. And when it came out, I was like, we already have Pearl Jam. We don't need this band. And then they came out with their second album in 1994, Purple. Somehow it evolved into their own sound that I frankly liked even better than Pearl Jam. Yeah, well, I think uh, a lot more heroin was in the mix between those two albums. But um, <laughs> anyway, you know, that's... <laughs> that they turned the heroin up to 11 in that album. Yeah, right. Speaking of heroin... It's kind of like cooking. You give two chefs the same ingredients 
and they can whip up completely different dishes like you're probably doing right now in your kitchen. I love that analogy. As you know, we try not to diss other people's music on this show because it's just a matter of taste, right? So as a vegetarian, I like to just say that one of the ingredients of, say, wake me up before you go-go is chicken. And I don't effing like chicken. A lot of people like chicken. I understand that, but I don't. So I don't really listen to wake me up before you go-go. Well, yeah. I mean, that that was Wham. And and of course, George Michael later really delivered us filet mignon. Well, I don't eat filet mignon either, but I think you're talking about faith. And I do it like that. So that I think is kind of a salad bar, like our band today. <laughs> I, I consider Avenge Sevenfold a salad bar because I, I really like the music. Yeah. So let's get right into it. Let's talk to the guy whose band is that salad bar, Johnny Christ. <laughs> but first, a short break. Well, hey, friends. My name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the one-hit thunder or were nothing more than a one-hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. And now a musician whose podcast Drinks with Johnny, Alex and I recently appeared on, and is also part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, so we're kind of like podcast cousins, Avenged Sevenfolds, Johnny Christ. All right, Johnny. So Avenged Sevenfold was ranked number 47 on Loudwire's list of top 50 metal bands of all time. And it turns out that I have seen every one of the top five bands on that list live. Oh, yeah? So number five was Slayer. Okay. Number four is Judas Priest. Number three, Metallica. Number two, Iron Maiden. And number one, Black Sabbath. Hmm. And Black Sabbath was my second concert ever with Ian Gillen singing instead of Ozzy Osbourne. Go figure. <laughs> so your band has gigged with many of the bands on the top 50 list. And I'm wondering, can you share a memorable Spinal Tap moment that you've had, Johnny, with any of these top five bands or any other band on that list, which includes Motorhead, Slipknot, Korn, Dream Theater? Oh, man. Well, the first time we 
played a show with Iron Maiden. They took us out in Europe. I think this was in 2007 or eight, sometime around there. We were touring for our self-titled record. The first show was out in Bologna, Italy. And we had heard rumors of the Iron Maiden fan base just being really disrespectful to the opening bands, let's put it that way. And we get out there and we're like, no, you know, we're a big band. We're doing well. They're going to be excited to see us, you know? And uh, we get out there and they are just arms crossed, stoic, just staring daggers through us. (laughs) And that was everybody in the front. All the Iron Maiden fans had come to the barricade. But in the back, there was about 5,000 Avenged Sevenfold fans that were chanting Avenged Sevenfold before we went on, and they were getting onslaughted with booze for it. Oh, no. Like, our fans were getting fucking demolished out there. And then they started throwing bologna sandwiches at us. Nice. <laughs> and I remember thinking, I was like, of course, it's bologna, and we're getting bologna sandwiches thrown at us. You know, it was comical, but it pissed us off, to be honest, at the time. We are like, fuck, you know? <laughs> It was a blow to the old ego, but we ended up putting our heads down and finishing out the rest of the tour like we're going to win them over. And we eventually did because, I mean, the first few thousand at these Iron Maiden shows in Europe literally get on trains and travel to every single fucking show. So you see the same Mm. 3,000 people. That's like about how far out you see in the crowd, right? And like you're seeing those same people and eventually... We started to earn their respect. But I mean, a Spinal Tap moment, I, I don't know too many other bands that had bologna sandwiches thrown at them in Bologna, Italy. So, did you have the presence of mind to sing the Oscar Mayer song, My Bologna Has a First Name? It's O S C A R. Oh, that would have been great. That would have been great. <laughs> Took about a week of us just like showing them. We're a real band. We play real music. You know, they're not just some pretty boys out there. So, well, I have it, one question in the Spinal Tap sense. Did the meat fit inside the bread of the sandwiches? There? Oh, hell no. Damn. You know it's an Italian sandwich. That, that meat's fucking slopping all over the side of it. You know, that was not a clean sandwich. That's really funny. Well, I'll tell you, when I saw Iron Maiden, they were going to play a show on the Seymour County Fairgrounds, outdoors in the country, Wisconsin. And it was Iron Maiden, Rat, and Accept, the German band. And, I mean, the gates opened like it two in the afternoon, something like that. And we're all standing there. And that's when the buses and the semis showed up. They were so late. We had to watch the entire stage get set up, band after band. So we were standing there for hours before they even started. And it was really, uh, as a 16 or 17-year-old, it was semi-interesting to see the -the behind-the-scenes machinations happen. But yeah, it was a bit of a oddball kind of thing. Yeah. And I mean, the Iron Maiden setup is not an easy setup. <laughs> right. And they got Eddie's all over the place now. I mean, the tour we did with them in Europe, they were opening with Aces High and stuff. So some songs that they hadn't brought out in a while. So they brought out the production for it. Cool. So it was really cool. And then actually another funny story about their production is one of the last days of the tour, I think we did a grass pop festival and they mm-hmm. had this devil, the animatronic thing that someone had to physically go inside and move around. Steve Harris's daughter would do it because you had to be kind of smaller to get up in there. It wasn't a very big space. And they're like, you're small. Would you like to do that one time? And I was like, yes, (laughs) I would love to be fucking doing that, you know? (laughs) That's super cool. So they put me up in the devil, like the last show we had with them, all their crew guys, they were super sweet guys. So you're up in this thing and you can't really move that well. And you've got these things and you're just like moving. Then the devil's doing this and breathing fire and stuff. But you're in this little, like almost tank kind of thing, right? And my feet are dangling though. And one of the tall crew members, 
he starts taking my shoes off and wrapping my feet in duct tape and then putting a lighter to my feet. I was like, what the fuck are you doing, dude? And I'm trying to do this. <laughs> it was pretty insane, man. Johnny, you're the first band we've had on the show that's roughly the same genre as Spinal Tap. That is heavy metal. Oh, yeah. Now, Spinal Tap's brand of metal is best represented by the lyrics to their song, Heavy Duty, which go, just crank the volume till the point of pain. Why waste good music on a brain? <laughs> <laughs> now, Avenged Sevenfold, you guys offer a headier mix of metal, right? I mean, you have a concept album all about AI. Right from 2016, no less, called The Stage. Mm -hmm. How do you see your band's place in the genre? I mean, I guess some of our earlier stuff is definitely a little bit more metal. I think we've always classified ourselves as just a hard rock band. We are inspired by all those other hard rock acts, and it brings it all together for us. Like, we do have punk elements. We have metal elements sometimes, too. We have hardcore elements. We have pop rock, classic rock elements. And we have eclectic tastes, so we are also pulling from country songs. I mean, we just kind of run the gamut at this point. So it's kind of hard to pigeonhole us. And the honest truth is that we just write what we think is good for us. Like at the end of the day, we're trying to accomplish something that we think is good. Then you put it out and hopefully other people agree. But the goal is to write something that we enjoy. And we're pulling from our own inspirations, which are so vast between five different guys. A lot of people would look at us as a heavy metal band, but I think that we're so much more than that. Obviously, you play bass in Avenged Sevenfold. We've had a couple bass players from some of our hero bands as guests on the show. We had Tommy Stinson from The Replacements. Oh, shit. We had Brian Ritchie from Violent Femmes. And I'm wondering, who are some of your musician heroes? And have you had Spinal Tap moments with any of them? <laughs> um, man, I don't know about Spinal Tap moments, but I mean... Some of my favorite bassists early on were like Les Claypool, Matt Freeman, Duff McKagan, Cliff Burton, all guys that were kind of like in the genre that I play, except for Les, I mean, <laughs> Primus is on a category all on its own, I think, yeah. so uh, fucking freakish, I love it. But yeah, I mean, over the years, I mean, I grew up loving Steve Harris, you know, as we talked at the top of this show, right? got to hang with him a bit, he's a really nice guy, I mean... I don't think I ever really put my foot in my mouth when I've been around him too often. So I don't know if I have spell that <laughs> moments there. He might say differently, but I don't, rem I don't recall any of them. <laughs> and then, you know, touring with Metallica, getting to meet Robert Trujillo, who's a huge bassist. I mean, just a monster. Absolutely love him. And, you know, he played with our drummer, Brooks Wackerman, who we brought in in 2015. And uh, they used to do Suicidal together and Infectious Grooves and all those fun things of the mid-90s. And yeah, just... Getting to talk to Robert and befriending him was really cool. But again, I don't know that I had any crazy Spinal Tap moments. I do remember when I first met Robert, he came back in the dressing room at the Fillmore in San Francisco with James Hetfield and Lars. We were on Wake in the Fall, and so this must have been like 2004. And just to be clear, James and Lars Ulrich being, of course, the leaders and co-founders of Metallica. Right. They come to the show. They introduce themselves backstage in the green room. Robert's looking at my bass. I'm playing a music man at the time. I wasn't expecting him to be there and I'm warming up and he's like, oh, you got a music man. Uh, I really like this. I was like, 
yeah, man, I really like him too. It's pretty cool, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, then they leave, and me and my late drummer, uh, Jimmy, were huge Metallica fans, as, as all of us were, but both of us looked at each other after they shut the door in the room and we're like, did that just fucking happen? <laughs> I got so excited. I just started playing this crazy riff. And like, he's a, like, I've never seen you play that fast before. I'm like, I'm jazzed up. Let's go play this fucking show. Like, this is great. That's awesome. Uh, I don't know if that's a spinal tap moment, but it's certainly a, a story we're sharing. No, it's, it's crazy. Meeting your heroes is always such a iffy proposition. You know, I got to meet Elvis Costello a couple of years ago and. Oh shit. That must've been rad. And I'm like, okay, do not say to him, you're the reason why I started playing music. Just don't say that to him. Of course, that's exactly what I said to him. <laughs> He's like, oh, really? <laughs> Is that good or bad? You know? <laughs> right. Well, that's funny. I befriended Robert over the years. Sure. I don't think I've ever told him that story. Or James or Lars. I don't think I've told any of those guys that story. You know, I just like... <laughs> you guys end up touring with Metallica, right? Yeah, shortly after that. We've done a couple tours with them. We did our first European tour with them. That was 2006. One of the first shows was Berlin. And they had us come up and do a Ramones cover of Commando with them on the stage. It was 6606. We were playing in front of 50,000 Germans right before them. Wow. Once again, we had to win them over during our 35-minute set. And uh, we did a pretty good job. And then they brought us back out. And it was an incredible day in Berlin. I mean, we were up on stage with our heroes. Awesome. It was pretty sick, man. And then after that, we finished out the tour with them. We hopped on a few dates with Guns N' Roses at the same time while we were in Europe. We were on dual tours in 2006. Really? That's insane. You must have been playing in front of millions of people. Yeah. I mean, it was great. It was tough though. We were just starting to gain momentum in the States with songs like Backcountry and the release of City of Evil. So, you know, we had established ourselves and we were making some good money over in America. And then like to get main support for Metallica and Guns N' Roses at the time, you don't pass that up, obviously, but to make it work monetarily was very difficult. Like we had our crew in with us in the bus I guess this is a spinal tap moment. Like the entire time it had like a sulfur smell to it. There was a sulfur leak in the bus. Yikes. It was brutal. And then same thing with Iron Man a couple years later when we went back, we told management, we can't do that. That was brutal. That was grueling. And they made Iron Maiden work for us too. But we had to be bare minimum once again. I mean, we were out there with line sixes before there was fractals and stuff. That's how like minimalistic we had to go with our back line. And, uh, yeah, that one was brutal. We we almost quit. There was several of us that almost quit at the end of the Iron Maiden tour because we had to drive our buses. You got Bruce Dickinson literally flying to each fucking country that they're doing with days off in between. They're selling out stadiums. It's a different level for them. But we have to drive to those places, and it's Europe. Yeah. If anyone's traveled, especially back then in 2007 or eight, you get to these towns in between the big cities where you're playing the shows and they're closed. You're just trying to fucking find a meal and everything's closed in the middle of the afternoon for their afternoon breaks and stuff. It was wild. It was wild. It was really hard. We all got mad at each other. <laughs> a couple of us booked a couple of flights home and then never actually got on them. Our tour oh, manager really? at the time actually got us, got us to come back on it. It was just tough. We were towards the end of the cycle too. And it was just a grueling touring, but you know, it helped us out. I mean, the next time after that, we went back after doing that Iron Maiden thing on our own for Europe and we were in arenas. So it worked out. I mean, it was grueling, but it worked out. We had Carrie Brownstein and Corin Tucker from Slater Kinney on the show. And Carrie said, the glamour and the squalor live side by side on the road. And when mm. you mentioned a sulfur smell that you had to live with on your bus, which is essentially your home. 
Uh, we were worried for yeah. our guitar player at one point because he was the closest one to the smell. He had accidentally picked that bunk. And we were like, dude, he's going to pass out back there. You can't just keep breathing that in. <laughs> and for the record, it wasn't Iron Maiden's fault. They were sweet. They were great to us. Guns N' Roses as well, the guys in there, Metallica, all that time, like from 2005, 2010, those bands that took us out, bringing us up on stage when we were nobody in Berlin for Metallica, you know. They threw some parties, Iron Maiden did, so it was really fun. Um, they were great to us, all great to That's us. That's neat. Listen, if they ask me to open for them, fuck it, I'm not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go with some other Maiden, like Bronze Maiden, but- <laughs> But not Iron, can't do not Iron. Not Iron, no way. <laughs> Johnny, I heard the great Drinks with Johnny episode with Dave Ellison from Megadeth. Yeah. And it was so cool to hear. I mean, he's from Minnesota, grew up on a farm. You know, again, he's an upper Midwesterner like Alan and me. So hearing him talk was just like talking to someone we would have grown up with, how he loves and was influenced by Kiss mm -hmm. and Cheap Trick and the bands that Alan and I grew up loving. Um, Alan, actually, I don't know if you love Kiss growing up, but I did. I had- I, I liked them. I was fond. Mm. Yeah, I had every album through Alive 2. So when Dave was talking about literally the back cover of the legendary Kiss Alive double album and the photo of the seated crowd, I could totally picture yeah. what he was talking about. <laughs> and he told this hilarious story about having this nice apartment in LA. And he said, I grew up in a good family. So, we, you know, we had furniture in our house. So he had like a couch and he had dishes in the cupboard in his LA apartment. Right. And he mentioned having Slash and Steve Adler from Guns N' Roses come over before they started making money from Appetite for Destruction, stuff like that. And just being blown away that he actually had dishes, right? <laughs> and a place to sit. So right. my question for you is, have you ever gone to a fellow musician's place and been blown away either by the high life or the low life attributes of their living conditions? I mean, there's a couple that come to mind that I've actually gone to their houses, both of them being drummers, Mike Portnoy and Vinnie Paul, late great Vinnie Paul. Vinnie Paul's house, when I first went there, I was kind of blown away. It was a place out in the Dallas suburbs, just outside of there. Nice big house. He's got game rooms. Everything's like kind of spread out perfectly for entertaining at all times. He used to have barbecues for every band that would come through that he was friends with. He would just like, hey, before your show or if you have a day off, come over to the house. Great with hospitality. And I just remember thinking like, this is the way to do it. When I get my house, you know, I was in my early 20s. And I was like, when I get a house, I'm going to do it like this. That was a really cool moment. He was just such a sweetheart. Loved him. And then Mike Portnoy uh, was in Pennsylvania. And when we were going over to his house, this was after I already had my house and stuff, but I was like, oh, he's got a basement, Southern California. We don't have basements. And in his basement, <laughs> he had a rad movie theater and then like his drum room. And then there was even a third room. This is all in one basement level where he had all of his memorabilia and records and everything. And I mean, it was an entire room of this shit. And I was like, that's why you're an encyclopedia of music knowledge. He just knows everything about music. It's insane. But yeah, that was a really cool spot too. I was like, dude. No wonder you live out here. You don't have to go anywhere. You got this nice pool. You got this <laughs> movie theater downstairs. I was like, that's the way to do it. And then uh, shortly after, I did a remodel of my house and built my own bar and movie room upstairs because I can't go below. So I had to do <laughs> the same thing upstairs. So I took some uh, inspiration from a couple of those guys. That's cool. I feel like Elfson said that uh, Portnoy's house is kind of a 
mashup of Tower Records and Guitar Center. Yeah, it's exactly what it is. Yeah, it's pretty unique, man. It's a cool place. But guys, you don't need to be in the music business to have a cool theater. The nicest home theater I ever experienced was my brother-in-law's in-laws in Iowa. They have a farm, a nutrient for cattle, and they made so much money off of that. They had basically a Lemley theater next to the farm. It was the yeah. most amazing theater I ever saw. So... Oh, yeah. And I've heard Snoop Dogg's theater is amazing, too. He's, he's got a compound that I forget who I was talking to. They went and did a, a showing of their movie there. And I heard it was like amazing. He passed out a bunch of joints, a bunch of alcohol and like had his <laughs> private theater. It doesn't matter where you got the money from. You build a movie theater when you get it. Absolutely. <laughs> get yourself a movie theater. <laughs> when I was a tour manager and I was out with the Chills from New Zealand, one of their managers was Madonna's sister, Melanie. Right. And so we got to go up to Madonna's house in the Hollywood Hills and swim in her pool. She wasn't home, mm. but Melanie had the keys. So we were <laughs> hanging out there. And you know, this was before cell phones. And so I was uh, sitting around in Madonna's living room and there was a phone there. And I was thinking to myself, is there a way that I could discreetly pick up this phone and call my parents back in Wisconsin and say, I'm calling you from Madonna's phone. Hello, operator. <laughs> but uh, that would have been on Madonna's long distance bill. And I'm sure she's looking at every itemized <laughs> line. At that. <laughs> That's how rich people get rich. Yeah, yeah. They check their credit card statements. <laughs> Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Gray Street. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Mods to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. I got a question for you, Johnny. So... In Spinal Tap, they have an album, Smell the Glove, yes. and the label oh, so won't go with it, and it's very controversial, but you guys did- But you should have seen the cover that they wanted to put on it. <laughs> right, right, right. That's right. right. <laughs> <laughs> well, but on your album, Life is But a Dream, you worked around it. You have multiple album covers, right? Mm -hmm. That's really cool. How do you manage that? Um, well, I mean, it's kind of the way that you distribute physical copies these days, right? You give special things to it so that there's a value in purchasing a physical copy rather than going to a Spotify or Apple and streaming it. And we worked with Wes Lang on this. 
amazing artist. He made some incredible artwork that we've used for merchandise and the album artwork. And we just did variations of it. He did a piece of art for every song on the album. Cool. And it was fucking awesome. And there were so many rad variations that we could have even used that we were like, well, these are great too. So let's do different prints of the same thing too. So that's why our vinyls have different colorations and stuff like that. But yeah, he came up with concepts for each song pretty much and different variations of our death bat and the grim reaper guy coming in. And it really was just a collaboration that happened for the right reason. And we love the art, so we're going to use it, <laughs> I guess, is what it comes down to. Well, it's great added value. As you said, you have to encourage people to buy physical copies these days. I still have to this day, I have the talking heads speaking in tongues, and Robert Rauschenberg did the design for it. And it's really cool. Right. The whole sleeve actually interacts with the vinyl itself. And as you turn the record, it changes the picture. Mm, that's awesome. That sounds great. And it'd be worth a lot of money if I knew where it was. <laughs> I packed it away like 30 years ago. It's in a box somewhere. Somewhere. You'll find it. You'll find it. With my Lenny Bruce autograph and my Hank Aaron autograph. Uh, Hank Aaron autograph. That's no joke. Yeah. I think the rats in your attic have probably gotten to that already too. Yeah. They got to my tuxedo, but it was a great Halloween costume. <laughs> that worked. <laughs> did you clean it first or did you did you leave no, the rat poo on not it? Not for Halloween. I'm not going to. It, it's got- it's, <laughs> That's disgusting. It's got man. pocket full of rat shit in it. Yeah. Shit. <laughs> That's how the plague started, man. You got to be careful You're with right. that shit. <laughs> I just thought it was a bruise, but it's right. actually the plague. Horrible. <laughs> so, Johnny, I was a fan of Motley Crue in the Shout the Devil era. And, in fact, my high school talent show band played Red Hot at the Catholic Boys School where I went. And um, <laughs> Red. So I'm familiar with sort of the rebelliousness of the references of the devil. And, of course, Motley Crue had the pentagram and all that kind of stuff. What's the backstory as you understand it is kind of the use of the skulls. In fact, Advent Sevenfold, you have the skull with the bat wings as mm. kind of your logo. You know, what's kind of behind that? Oh, man. Uh, well, we go back to the precipice of our death. That's what we call the skull with the bat wings. It's been dubbed the death bat. That was branding as a band, just as a garage punk rock band. When we were very first starting out, I wasn't even there for it, but I know the story well. So basically... We idolized bands like The Misfits, Iron Maiden, for their imagery and their artwork. Because, I mean, everyone might not know a bunch of Misfits songs, but they know when they see the ghoul mask, that's Misfits. Right. And we wanted the logo that you knew what it represented without any words around it. So that's why we came up with the Death Bat with our late great friend, Micah Montague. The guys came up with the idea, pitched it to him. We wrote a sketch with a pencil right there on a piece of paper, and that's how the Death Bat was made. Um, I think it might have gone through a couple iterations. Don't quote me on that, but it was pretty quickly decided that the original Death Bat would be our logo that could speak on its own. Interesting. We did have a funny iteration of the Death Bat for ourselves that would be more of a Spinal Tap moment. We were enjoying the success of City of Evil, and we did a co-headlining tour with Coheed and Cambria, and we wanted to up our production for the first time. So we had what was supposed to be a really badass steel death bat and skull with the bat wings and it was going to pop up at a certain point of the show and its wings were going to go and it was going to be this epic thing similar to what happens in spinal tap right um <laughs> it didn't work out so well <laughs> sometimes it did and it, and it was kind of cool but like more often than not it was on a hydraulic system that you know you have to cover up the hydraulic with black curtains so you can't see that part so it looks like it's floating when we showed up to the first show and we just looked at it we're like 
I mean, it's kind of cool, but it also looks really fucking cheesy. And like, <laughs> I mean, we paid for this fucking thing to get made. And uh, sometimes it just wouldn't rise. The wings wouldn't do anything. It would just be sitting there. And we're like, yep, that's our prop for the night. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty funny. I mean, and the crew members, you know, we thought it was all cool. You know, we're in the early 20s. We're a hard rock, heavy metal band. We're doing some kick-ass things. It's going to look badass. And they named it Fluffy. <laughs> and I was like, God damn it. <laughs> Okay, what was your favorite scene in Spinal Tap? Every scene has something that is so precious and beautiful about it. So I'll kind of cheat and give you two. One of them was a little silly just for me as a bassist when they are playing a song and it's all bass. I can't remember. I think it might have been Heavy heavy Duty. It's Big Bottom. Big Bottom, that's right. Well, he's got a double neck bass. Double neck bass. Everyone's on bass. And I'm like... It's that little subtlety that like, if you're a musician, you get the most people would probably see that and go, Oh, not even think anything of it. Yes. But yeah, that was a funny moment. And then what I really loved, and it's fucking right off the bat, pretty much in the movie is the interviewers asking them questions, reading them back their reviews from the press. It's kind of like mean tweets that we get now. Sure. Two words, shit sandwich. And they're like, oh, they got us good on that one. And I've been in that position so many times. So I'm like, All right, so tell us, the reviews. do you have a review that comes to mind that always sticks in your craw or it's so bad it was funny? You know, I wish I did. But I mean, there's been several over the years and, you know, most of it becomes white noise. You don't even really pay attention to it. But every now and then you get a good journalist who gets you good. And you're like, that was fucking funny. That was good. <laughs> you know, like, like, I can't. I, I, you're right, man. That was rad. <laughs> that was a good analogy. But you um, always remember the bad reviews. The one review I remember, and it was meant negatively, was that I was in a band called Women's Liberace. And the reviewer said, the singer sounds suspiciously like Billy Joel. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I like Billy Joel. Yeah. That was meant to be a knock. I mean, that was meant to be a knock. That's not a very good knock. That's not a very good knock. But if they meant it as a knock, you have to defend yourself. It's horrible. <laughs> but I want to ask you another question because you have another very similar thing to Spinal Tap is that, you know, in Spinal Tap, they have a problem with their record label. You got sued in 2016 for trying to leave Warner Brothers because all the execs who brought you in left. Yeah, I mean, honestly, there was a shifting of the guard at Warner Music at the time. When we signed in 2004, I believe it was, towards the end of our Warp Tour, we were getting a buzz off of that. And labels were coming out and pitching us. And Warner was the one at the time. Tom Wally was running things there. Right. Andy Oliphant, our co-A&R, and worked very closely with us. And then the late Craig Aronson was our main dude there. And uh, between the three of them, and then, of course, the cast of Xavier, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting a bunch of names. There was a good crew that really understood this band, and that's why we went with them. It wasn't an issue of money or anything like that. Everything was pretty much apples to apples, but this was the crew that we wanted to go with. They, we felt that they had the right team. And, you know, over the years, slowly but surely, it started dissipating, and there was one familiar face left. And we were like, we don't have a lot of confidence that you guys are getting what our purpose is and what we do yeah. at the time. And I mean, again, this is 2016, things have changed again. But yeah, at the time, the people who there were just, we weren't vibing with. Our lawyers brought up a point that in California, we were past the seven year clause. Uh, we technically had one more album, but blah, 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 blah. Legal shit went back and forth. I don't know how much I could talk about that. We ended up actually releasing the stage on Capitol Records. And then um, 
yeah, we came back to Warner Music. Hmm. They gave us a little bit more confidence in uh, new management over there and new leadership. And we worked out the details and we're back with them to release uh, Life is But a Dream. Yeah, that is so nuts. The public thinks you get signed to a major label and you're like set, right? It's smooth sailing and that's... And in theory, it could have been, but there was a lot of changeover that happened in the industry. <laughs> I mean, it was, yeah. it was just bad timing for yeah. the industry in general. And now with streaming and everything, it's hard to decide what a big label is doing for you now. Like what's the payoff? And right. you have to, as a new musician, I would say like bands coming up and, and other artists coming up, you have to really weigh out your options now because you have more options than just going to a major label. We fancy ourselves entrepreneurs as well as musicians, and we're constantly trying to better our situations and make sure that we're making the right decisions for our career, for our families, for everything. And in that, you got to be open to these new possibilities. And I think that's what it was. We were fed up. We didn't feel like we had a lot of confidence there. So we made the decision and then we came back, I guess. So it all worked out. <laughs> your album, The Stage on Capitol, you guys did a special concert on the roof of the iconic Capitol Records building in Hollywood. Right. That sounds incredible and epic and like an absolute slow pitch across the center of the plate for Spinal Tap moments. Anything <laughs> weird happened there? I wouldn't say anything weird. It went really good. I mean, and that was 2016. It was the first live stream using drones. And we had graphics as well. So it was like one of the first times that we're doing that. Obviously, in 2020, a lot of artists shifted and actually did the same thing out of necessity. But at the time, we did it because we thought it was cool. We're going to use this technology. We're on top of Capitol Records. It's an iconic fucking building. Before we did the signing with them, we were at Capitol Records every once in a while doing strings. I mean, their room B in the studio down there is fucking incredible for strings with all the cabinets and stuff. Right. The acoustics that they built for it. Um, so we'd been there, you know, a few times, but to actually go through the building, not just go straight to the studio space is incredible. You see all the iconic records, Beach Boys, all these things that have come through there. And yeah, it was just really cool. And then going up on the roof, I wouldn't say there's a spinal tap moment, but a little insight is I'm terrified of heights. Oh boy. I get up on a ladder and I get shaky and we were up there and I was like, you can't put me any closer to that wall. I won't do it. <laughs> if I can look down and see the crowd down there, I'm going to freak out. <laughs> we got through it. I mean, with the technology that we were doing and everything and the way it was set up, we weren't moving very much. It was safe. But I was like, this is really high. I don't like this. Well, you closed an important loop because obviously the Beatles were signed by Capitol originally, right? And mm -hmm. they didn't perform on Capitol's roof. They performed on Apple's roof. Yeah. So you guys closed the loop with the Beatles. You guys are inextricably linked for all eternity now. From your mouth, man. I love it. That's right. You put us anywhere near the fucking Beatles, I'll take it. You, you put us outside in the parking lot, we'll fucking take it. Johnny, it's fun for us sometimes to go to the fans and ask them what questions they'd like us to ask. So I went on to Reddit and the Avenged Sevenfold subreddit is pretty active. Okay. And one of the things that they seem to like to do there is post these set lists. So Dr. Munchies said, ask Johnny if the band would ever consider doing a fan chosen set list. Hmm. hmm. I mean, 
Never say never, but I mean, I, I don't see it happening anytime soon. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just being honest. I mean, like it's, I appreciate it. I really do. I appreciate the fan base and I appreciate their enthusiasm for everything. I mean, I know it's cliche, but it's true. But I do think because of the ignorance in it, <laughs> and I mean that in a nice way, like the true definition, you haven't toured, you haven't put together a set list ever, probably in your lives, but you're going to put together our set list. And I think it's awesome. I think it would be really fun to do. It would be very fun. So that's why I say never say never. But I will say we take a lot of time and effort in putting the right set list together. It's not like we're just, oh, we want to play this tonight. Like sure. it, there's a lot of thought and because you want to please as many people as you can and keep it interesting for us on stage. As soon as we're not interested in it anymore, you'll be able to tell. The fans will be able to tell. It won't be the fun right. environment that we like to bring to our live show. So there's a lot of factors that you have to bring in to get a two-hour set the right way. And when you're going to have these high moments and when it's going to come back down, I know it might seem arbitrary, but it's not. It's very methodical the way that we pick our set list. So that's why I would say never say never. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. But not anytime soon. But never. But you know what? <laughs> <laughs> mm, nah. But you know what's funny? I only grabbed that one line from what Dr. Munchie said, mm. he or she suggested this actually methodical process for determining what that set list would be. Oh, maybe I spoke too soon. I would love to not have to have those discussions with my bandmates on set list. Right. Like, be, yeah, just send me the homework. Let's go. <laughs> anyway, I will send it to you, Johnny, just because you might think it's interesting. Absolutely. All right. One more from Reddit. X21. Well, actually, let, let me do a little preface on this. It's been pretty extraordinary the number of times that just serendipitously, spontaneously, stories about having to try and figure out how to take a dump on the road have come up. <laughs> in our conversations. Naturally. And especially when bands are doing the club circuit and stuff, it can be challenging, surprisingly challenging. Absolutely. So X21 said, ask him about the blowout he had after eating at the shed in Biloxi, Mississippi that caused him to be late to the stage. Does that ring a bell? I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think. That's why you don't let your fans plan your set list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, honestly, I mean, I'd, Fully admitted if it happened. I'm trying to think. I don't remember the Biloxi one. I just, I don't remember a blowout like that. The blowout in Biloxi. Okay. You know, it might have been. <laughs> the only thing I can think of is we did used to do these videos that we'd play on the screen when the main support band would finish. The screens would start to turn on a little bit for us. And we did a countdown after a certain point in the countdown, like a, a clock is counting down to Avenged Sunfold in the stage. We would record these videos during the day, addressing the fans and saying, we're going to be on in five minutes or something like that. And we do these little skits. And one of the skits I do recall might've been me on the shitter. So they might've thought it was like a real thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think I saw that one on YouTube. Or That's the only thing I can think of actually. Those were so fun to make. That is really cool. I do think all my performances from those videos were pretty good. Being an untrained actor, you know, I think I could, with a little bit of training, I think I could do it. I don't know. Let's see. Yeah. 
Well, when I heard the shed in Biloxi, I thought maybe you'd gotten some bad gumbo or something like that. But, you know, who knows? <laughs> we'll never know for sure. I hate scatological stories, but I remember I was playing in Chicago and there's a place called Aranda's, which was a Mexican fast food place. And I always took a nap before I played. And after a sound check, I went there and I got that and I shit the bed when I was sleeping. <laughs> oh. Then I had to get up and play and I was like anemic by the end. I was in such bad <sighs> shape. So. I never ate before a show again. Oh, dude. I've had some stomach issues on stage. I puked on stage in uh, Japan one of the times. I was deathly sick and we went out there. (laughs) I would have beers up on stage and my beers were there because our crew was amazing. And Matt called me out and was like, oh, he's really sick right now. They didn't understand because he's talking English and we're in Japan. So they thought I was sick like with a hangover. He's like, oh yeah, he's really hungover. He's got to drink these beers. So he kept daring me to chug a beer in between each song. And I'm on steroids and antibiotics. I got really badly sick before we were leaving for this Japan tour, but it was like our first Japan tour. And I was like, I'm not missing it. Shoot me up. I'm getting on the plane. So I'm deathly fucked up. And (laughs) Matt Berry, our crew guy, tried to save me by filling up the cans of beers with water. But I'm a prideful guy. And I was like, nah. We're doing this for real. I don't care how bad I feel. So I just started chugging beers in between. And like, he goes to hand me another bass during a changeover. And I said, hold on. I went, Wah! and just fucking yacked. And I grabbed the bass and I was like, ah, I feel better now. And I continued playing and then chugged another beer by the end of it. My wife was out with me. She didn't find it as funny as I did, but you know. Yeah, yeah I imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> Johnny, thanks so much for being on. This has really been a lot of fun. No, oh, thank you. This has been fun, man. Yeah, and I, uh, we'd like to know where our listeners can find out all the information about what you're doing, how to support you, so on and so forth on socials and et cetera. Oh, yeah, man. Um, so easiest way for me personally is Drinks with Johnny everywhere. That's really easy to find, drinkswithjohnny.com. Everywhere on your socials, Drinks with Johnny, everywhere you get your podcast, YouTube, and you'll find uh, what I do as my little fun side project, getting to podcast and meet people like yourselves and have a good fun conversation. And uh, for Avenge Sevenfold, that's even easier to find, actually. So <laughs> Avenge Sevenfold pretty much everywhere. And then uh, I'm more over on the Drinks with Johnny stuff. So that's the place to find me. Fantastic. And you will be found. All right, good. Well, thanks so much. Thank you, guys. Johnny H. Christ. That's about all there is to say right now, listeners. Although I also want to say thanks to Sam Hawkins, the producer of Drinks with Johnny, for helping us to set this up, and Ann Wade from Evergreen Podcast Network for putting us all in touch. It's really lots of fun. Too Much Effing Perspective is a Milwaukee Talkies original. Our editor is Gretchen Kilby. Our music composer is J.K. Harrison. Please follow us on Instagram at TMEPshow. Visit our website at TMEPshow.com to sign up for our mailing list. And find our other episodes featuring rock stars, comedians, and entertainment luminaries whose bizarro stories we enjoy and we think you will too on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers, this podcast is not affiliated with This Is Spinal Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions.
Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenge Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now. Evergreen Podcast Network.